Yo, partnership alert, partnership alert, partnership alert. Living Corporate has a partnership with LinkedIn Learning, an American massive open online course provider that provides video courses taught by industry experts across a wide array of subjects. Now, the partnership is because Living Corporate has courses on LinkedIn Learning focused on diversity, equity, inclusion for leaders, career professionals, and anyone really looking to upskill themselves and be better allies. So make sure you check out our courses on LinkedIn Learning by clicking the link in the show notes. And let's just say you don't want to do that. You go to LinkedIn Learning on LinkedIn, search Living Corporate. We'll be right there. All right. Peace. Hello, everybody. Good evening. Welcome to the last show of the first season of The Break Room. We are super glad to have you here. I'm uh, Dr. Brian Dixon. I'm one of your one of your co-hosts for the evening. Um, I am a child psychiatrist in Fort Worth, Texas. I get to help people uh, live their best lives, and I'm super, super honored and pleased to be with my awesome co-host for this evening for the last show. So I'm going to kick it over to Dr. Nikki to introduce herself. Hello, everyone. For the last time for this season, I am Dr. Nikki Coleman, a licensed psychologist in Houston, Texas, actually newly licensed in multiple states across the country through the Pact Agreement. So I'm a licensed psychologist and I see uh, women and couples um, who are having issues in relationships as well as their sexual wellness. And I also am a DEI consultant and trainer. Congratulations. Yay, that's awesome. Yep, and we'll kick it over to uh, Dr. G-Day. Okay, hey everybody. Uh, it's, it's been a while, but uh, it's me, Dr. G-Day Bamashigbin. Uh, I'm an assistant professor of psychology at California State University, Long Beach. I'm a health psychologist and I'm a father to two young boys and a husband. Uh, really excited to be here. Yeah, so kicking it over to Dr. Lawanda. Hey y'all. I'm Dr. Lawanda Hill. I'm a licensed consultant, licensed psychologist, I'm sorry, and consultant. And I'm excited to be here and excited to really just recap our first season and leave y'all with some amazing tips to pursue uh, Black mental health awareness in the, in the workplace. Excellent. And yeah, so y'all, we have a great show planned for y'all. As always, we like to um, start the first half of the show off with the tea. So we're going to go there first. Then we'll go into our kind of top 10, top 10 tips. Uh, say that three times fast. Uh, top <laughs> 10 tips. Uh, and then we're going to go over to the last nerve. And y'all, we got a good one tonight because some people don't listen and can't. Oh, Lord Jesus. We'll get there. And then we'll <laughs> close out that show. Um, uh, and we want to make sure to have uh, answer any of your questions. So by all means, put them in the chat if you have questions throughout the show. Or you can email us at thebreakroom at living-corporate.com because we got a real email, y'all. So uh, by all means, let us know. Um, that will also help us for planning for next season. So before we even get down there, let's talk about the tea for today. So the Olympics are coming up in Tokyo. Um, most folks are keeping their ass at home because you know there's a virus and COVID everywhere, but I digress. Um, there is a company called Soul Cap that's out of the UK, and they make swimming caps for basically black people and black hair. And so the idea is that black hair is very 
um, uh, can be uh, stripped of uh, its uh, wellness and its health because of all the chlorine. And so they applied to be used in the Olympics. And the Olympic Committee said, uh, don't nobody need a cap that big. And so they denied that. So I want to bring that to the uh, break room host tonight uh, to get y'all's impressions on um, a kind of anti-blackness throughout the Olympics and throughout the world. So who want to take it first? My initial reaction is that I'm not shocked. Like people just really don't understand our experiences with our hair, with our being. So I don't, I haven't really gathered all of my thoughts to say, you know, to get this really analytical, scholastic opinion of it. But I'm like, I'm not shocked. Like people still have a hard time. It's only what in the state of California that it is legalized, that it's in law, that you can't discriminate against people for their hair, like that you can actually wear hair ties mm-hmm. and different things to work. And that's just one of 50 states. So I'm not shocked that the Olympics is further behind mm-hmm. than the actual U.S. as it relates to black folks and their hair and like the nuances of it. So I'm not shocked. Can I just add, these are the same Olympics that said that, you know, you're not allowed to take a knee or wear any BLM type of gear. So once again, like it's it's on brand. Mm-hmm. Dr. Nikki, what you got? Yeah, I would agree. And I think probably the argument is made, uh, right, about numbers. And, you know, I'm sure there was a a capitalistic argument made about can we justify paying for this that's going to only apply to a handful of people. Um, But this is one of those areas where I think institutions like the Olympics, which it is, right, really missed the mark on doing the work of equity and really thinking about what that means Um, and how to really demonstrate inclusion. I think people love to talk about diversity, but the work comes around being equitable and how you do that and how to actually live out inclusion. And most places that hoard power are not really ready to have that conversation. So, Yeah, and it it hurts my my soul because water and swimming is something that is, um, it can be very scary for black folks. And so I'm going to put this uh, quote in the chat. Um, uh, the research shows that black kids um, are five times more likely to die by drowning in swimming pool than white kids are. And so it, uh, any barrier to learning how to swim and being safe in the water, any barrier, um, uh, hair included, we need to break those barriers down because this, this shit has real world implications. And so, yeah, so this bothers me a lot. Um, uh, I don't know how to fight racism on a global scale because you know how that goes. It's, it's hard enough to do that here, but I, I love what you said, Dr. Nikki. We have to, we have to do it anyway. We have to try. Um, we have to infuse that equity everywhere we go. Um, what do y'all, before we move on, what do y'all think about the fact that we're capstoning a, a hair, uh, issue? So we started the, the whole season off with gorilla Gorilla Glue Girl, right? Wow. We did. So, what is it about black hair that is just so interesting or controversial, y'all? It's not controversial. I think it's new. It's different. It's just different. I love what Dr. Nikki said. Like, most of the work for me mm-hmm. is around inclusion. Like, we are a diverse nation, period. And we mm-hmm. have not done the work to move beyond naming us as diverse and creating some level of inclusion. And that means that our hair is different. Our style is different. Our tone is different. Our enunciation is different. There are things that are different about black people right. that including their hair, our hair being central, a, a central part, not the only central part, but a central part of our identity that people don't understand. And so I think to me is 
I'm glad it came full circle, actually, because I had forgot that we started off with Gorilla Glue. But that was just another, like, just to understand what it meant for her to go through those things, to do these things to her hair, and then coming full circle with the Olympics denying this request as relates to hair, it just really speaks to how we do not have inclusive practices for Black folks Mm -hmm. and how far we have to go. Yep. And and so uh, I think that that is the perfect uh, segue for the break room, because that's what we're doing. We're talking about mental health for black folks in uh, at the workplace. Um, and we want to continue to uh, spread that message and, and grow that message over the years that y'all going to be listening to us. So we're going to uh, shift uh, into our topic for the evening and I'm going to kick it over to Dr. LaWanda. All right. So tonight, this is a season one recap, y'all. For those of you who are just joining, I want to welcome y'all to the break room. It is a space for black mental health in the workplace. If you have missed all of the episodes, you can certainly find them on Living Corporate. Um, You can find them on Crowdcast. Um, I hope you're following Living Corporate on LinkedIn and all our social media outlets to be able to really get some nuanced understanding of what it means to be black in the the workplace. So we have had an amazing season. I, I think I can speak for everybody when I say that we've had an amazing season. And I feel like I have grown so much as a person, as a clinician, as a practitioner, just from being around as Forbes put it, if y'all didn't catch it, we were featured in Forbes, four black doctors talking about mental health in the workplace. So I have definitely um, benefited and grown so much from the expertise of everybody here, whether it be as a DEI practitioner and just having a robust understanding of blackness and anti-blackness from Dr. Nikki, from from Dr. Brian, which has just having a very strong medical perspective of how this stress really takes a toll on us biologically. And then with Dr. Jade just doing the work and the labor to research what it means, how it affects us and giving us some some stone cold statistics. I have grown so much and it's my pleasure to be able to recap some 10 tips of black mental health in the workplace for you all tonight that I want our amazing co-hosts to be able to elaborate on for people who have missed the season. So I, I think, we have had a, a like a lot of information to share with people, and I think it's important for us to try to synthesize it or summarize it, I should say, in a way in which people can like, all right, I'm black, I'm in the workplace, give me some tips for mental health. So we want to start it off, we want to pop it off, we want to give y'all some tips, feel free to chime in in the chat, ask us questions, give us comments, and we're going to elaborate. And so this is really, I'm just going to pose them back to y'all. And feel free to elaborate however you feel led, right? So we're talking about 10 tips, y'all, for mental health and well-being in the workplace. And the first tip that we want to offer is that how this is how we popped off the season. There are levels to this. There are levels to being Black in the workplace, and it has so many different levels of stress. I don't think that you can face what you can't name. So we want to name that. We want to give some language to it. We want to say that there are levels to being Black and having stress in the mental health workplace to start off knowing that. How do y'all feel about that? Are there any things that you would elaborate on as we talk about being black and having levels to this in the workplace? Yep, I'll jump in first. So um, I've been in white circles my whole entire life, my whole entire career. And so I didn't understand my blackness uh, until I came to the break room. Honestly, uh, I didn't understand how, um, how toxic the the um the architect the architecture of whiteness is mm. uh and so um yeah and and how pervasive it is like it's everywhere and so it's it's really important 
to recognize who you are and where you stop and where that toxicity is and where it stops and uh, and what it does to you. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm very appreciative. And now I'm, I, I talk about it all the time with all my uh, all my friends, including the white ones. Let's see. I think it's important to elaborate on that, because one of the things I found as a clinician is that we can get caught up in our uh, academic language. I want to convey it in layman's terms and ways in which people can understand it. So, Dr. Brown, when you say the architect of whiteness. Yeah. I so, haven't ever heard of that. Break that down. What well, yeah. Mean? So uh, it's it's that framework. So uh, for all of you listeners, all of the psychologists and, and myself on the uh, in the break room, we know the term is schema, right? S-C-H-E-M-A is kind of the framework that you see the world. Um, the same is true with whiteness. Like I had never heard it put in that way, but our, we live in a white world. And as black people, we have to maneuver through that white world. Uh, and that white world is not very differential to black folks. And so if you're not careful, it will literally suck your spirit. It will suck your energy. It'll suck your enthusiasm. Um, and uh, and unfortunately, quite a few white folks don't recognize that it's doing that. Right. And so we walk around tired and pissed off all the time and they don't see it. And so and then when you try to tell them, then they get mad. Right. So and I learned that as kind of maturing through this process. And uh, and so I'm really stoked about our first season. Um, fresh take, hot take. Um, I also think about sort of intersectionality um, and that when we show up as black at work, we're also black and queer, black and with a woman, black and trans, black and first generation in our family. We're all these sort of um, multiple layers um, intersecting and that, one of the things I think that is um, particularly toxic about whiteness, and, and I will say white supremacy, white supremacist culture, is it really wants you to be flat. It really wants to put you in a box and sort of um, make you digestible. And so part of what I think we bump up against as Black folks in the world of work that creates a sense of exhaustion, that creates um, the experience of having to manage microaggressions, that makes us really have to think strategically about navigating the world of work is that we're trying to show up as our full selves knowing that we can't. And I think that's kind of what we mean by is levels to this, right? Like there are some spaces in which like that intersecting parts of our identity, I haven't seen a workplace yet. Mm -hmm. and, and I'll be bold that that has fostered inclusion around all the levels of our identities. Mm -hmm. I have not seen one yet. I feel like there has been spaces that has fostered inclusion around some aspects of our identity, maybe mm -hmm. our queerness, but not our blackness. You know, maybe our level, of, like we're differentially able, but not necessarily our queerness or our gender. And so mm -hmm. there are different organizations with different levels of awareness around what it means to have all mm -hmm. these complex identities that I think are beautiful. I don't think that complexity is negative. I think that complex is amazing and it speaks to the diversity of this country. And so when, when we say there's levels to it, your organization has different levels in terms of its awareness and in terms of its intentionality by which is deviating from that architecture of whiteness, deviating from the norms of whiteness and really understanding that there's, we're not flat, that there's a level of complexity across our identity and that, level of awareness really speaks to the different levels of stress you're going to experience because god forbid you have multiple identities that are marginalized god forbid you black and queer and trans you know the level of lack the lack of awareness of those particular organizations to be able to be thoughtful about what it means to have your nuanced experience contributes to the level of stress so 
I hope people who are listening who are here and who will listen in the future will understand that those complexities, which leads us to our second point, is a systems issue. It's not your issue. It's not a reflection that you are complicated or that you are problematic. The systems that you are existing in have not caught up to you. They have not evolved to be able to be inclusive of you, to be able to facilitate an environment that is conducive to your mental health and well-being. So the second tip that we want to offer is to be mindful that the systems that you are operating in, they are challenging to you and that they sometimes can facilitate exclusion. They don't always facilitate inclusion. They don't always make you feel welcome. And if you're not careful, you will what we call internalize it, meaning you start thinking it's something about me. It's something that I'm doing. It's something that I need to shift. It's something that I need to pivot. And it doesn't belong to you. So we want to, the second tip is acknowledge that you are navigating in a system that has multiple levels of complexity and challenges that do not belong to you. It's the system's job to figure that out. I actually think about it a little bit differently. I think the systems are designed to make you feel excluded. I think they are designed to make you feel dehumanized. I think they are designed to make you feel less than. So I think these systems are functioning with exact intentionality. Um, I think our responsibility is to recognize that we have agency to opt out of systems. Because I think sometimes we can, the best and brightest of us spend a lot of energy trying to change the system. And the system has a vortex of its own. It's 600 years, probably longer than that, of functioning in the way that it is shaped to function. And so I think we expend a lot of unnecessary energy and talent, particularly as Black folks, trying to fight the system rather than thinking about building um, coalition and building energy and support and safety. Um, I have a friend that talks about maroon ideology. Um, Like we need to be looking more inward and taking care of ourselves inward than dealing with the system at all. And I would throw, uh, so I own my own practice. I think I'm up to like 11 employees now. And I've learned that systems are how you get things done in business. Like you just, you have to have a system of, you know, how people find you, how you, um, how you work with them, how you do their finances. Right. And the, the, the issue is that I've been noticing is that there aren't enough black people creating good systems because we're not in any of the places of power. And so, um, so often we get, um, uh, uh, I think black employees, like when you go to work and you try to work in those systems, just like Dr. Nikki said, they're not designed for you because there ain't a black person on the other end being and building inclusion and equity into it. And so, uh, again, one of the great things about this season is I've been more mindful and thoughtful about being intentional with, let me go find a black psychiatrist to work in our practice. Let me go and find a Latinx person uh, to round out um, our, um, our psychiatric team. You know, and and so, yeah, so some systems aren't built for you. And amen, you should seriously consider finding a new system or building your own. And I should have been clear systems of oppression. Right. Well, so we're the isms. Right. We do. We Lord knows I need some systems in this house to keep the household running. Right. So <laughs> <laughs> amen. Systems, systems in and of themselves, but systems of oppression, mm-hmm. racism, sexism, mm-hmm. homophobia, um, heterosexism, religious hegemony, like all of those things are functioning in exactly the way that they are meant to function. And there is not room for us. And and with all that being said, it's important to not internalize this, okay? Not internalize the things that you experience at work. It is not 
on you. So from here on out, from this day forward, okay, if you ever have to ask yourself, did this happen because I was black? The answer is yes. Yes. Okay. <laughs> the answer is yes. Amen. Cool I, was, I was about to, I said no. Everybody said yes. I said no. I was about to say, is this because it's something wrong with me? I was going to say no. no. Yeah. <laughs> both, both apply. No. Yes. Is this because I'm black? Yes, it is because you're black. Okay. There's, I, I hope after the guests we've had, the information we've shown you, the news stories we've shown you, you know that, listen, it is not you. This is how these systems are designed to affect us. Yeah. Yes. Okay. I feel the need to pause. Let's, let's, mm-hmm. let's break that down, right? Cause my next point for people is that not all systems are created equal. And I, some, and one of the things I've learned from this particular season, um, and just in my own journey is that like, this is something we've been immersed in. Like, you study it, you know, you're a scholar of it, Dr. Jade. You are a practitioner mm-hmm. of it, Dr. Nikki. You're you're well versed in it, Dr. Bryant. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes people are like, wait, what? Systems of oppression? Mm-hmm. You know, all that kind of stuff. I wanna just take a moment to make that in the most simplest terms. Like what does it mean or what are some of the indicators for people? Because I think you made a good point, Dr. Jade. Do not internalize it. Internalize mm-hmm. what? How do you know that you're in a system of oppression? And what does it mean mm-hmm. not to internalize it? I want to. Mm-hmm. I want people to be able to walk away from this season, understanding what it means to be in a system of oppression, and and what it means to not internalize it. Yeah, that's a hard one. I I I, I mean, the minute you're born, you're born. Yeah, you're born into systems. <laughs> like yeah. the, your existence is in the context of a system. Um, mm-hmm. And and those systems meaning uns, unspoken, unwritten, but very tangible. Um, ways of uh, what is acceptable, appropriate, normal, healthy, well, and what mm-hmm. is not. And the powers that be get to define all of those things. And anything mm-hmm. that doesn't fit in those categories then therefore becomes otherwise the other. And very often in our human systems, what we, our humanness, what we do is then say the other is bad. The particular challenge that I think that we have here in the United States is sort of our toxic and rampant capitalism in connection with all of these other systems. So what we really do is add a monetary value to all of those things. And we create lots of roadblocks for folks to be able to have access to um, all the things they need, resources that they need to live healthy, full, and, and equitable lives. And that goes from not having access to food because you live in a food desert, because you live in an impoverished impoverished area, to not having access to clean water, to being in a flood zone and not being able to move out of it, to getting lesser education, to being able to jump over all that hurdles and be the CEO of a company and still be seen as, oh, that black chick or being asked, should you be here? You know, this is a um, executive bathroom. Why are, why are you here? How'd you get in here? Mm-hmm. The, all of those are the systems. And when I when I think about how do you recognize it, the feeling to me, the, the first word that popped into my head while Dr. Nicky was talking is fairness. So if you ever have to ask yourself, was that fair, then you're probably in a in an oppressive system. So if you if you're going to work and something happens, and you're like, man, that, that that doesn't feel really fair, then there's a problem. So that's that's the first thing that jumped out to me. And, and building on um, what Dr. Dickey said, you know, like we're, we're born into these systems, right? So just know this. If you're poor, just know you're in a system of oppression. Just by virtue of you being poor, right? You're in a system of oppression. By the fact that we know what black is, 
that we're a system of oppression, <laughs> right? Because, you know, Black is a sort of a contract, right? By being gay and, you know, the history behind being gay and being trans and the abuses, right? Just, kn just knowing your history is how you know you're in a system of oppression, you know? So. I like it. I like the practical questions of like, is it fair, you know, picking up on like, oh, why are you here? That kind of made me feel some type of way. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm aware that I'm being poor. And I would ask, I would even offer if you ask yourself, like, sometimes like, well, what about me? You know, a lot of times these environments and these systems are centered around normalizing what it means to be a white person, specifically a white male, the secondary a white female, then a white straight female, um, and then a cisgender female and cisgender male. And so sometimes our things down to our hair, right? We actually need a cap for our hair because it's going to have a different impact. So when you start thinking like, well, what about me? I need a cap. Going back to Dr. Bryan's initial uh, T, what about the way my hair is made? That may be an indicator that you're in a system of oppression because it hasn't considered you or your uniqueness or your humanity. Um, and it's a deviation from what the norm is. So that that's the third tip I want to offer that we want to offer is that not all work environments are created equal in terms of their level of inclusion, their level of diversity, their level of toxicity. And I think it's important to know that as you're moving through it. All right, here's the big one. This might take a little bit of time. Another tip. All allies are not created equal. We have to know that when we're moving through these environments for everything that we said. Not all allies are created equal. And I think that that, that word is a very loaded term. So let's unpack that a, bit, a little bit. When we say that not all allies are created equal, what comes up for y'all? Uh, the very first thing I have to jump in on this one, and I can't remember if it was Dr. G.A. or Dr. Nikki, but um, uh, an ally cannot call themselves an ally. Like, they're not going to be like, hey, I'm I'm the ally, right? And for whatever that reason, was oh, was that you? You don't get to name yourself. Yeah, I was like, I never thought about that. So, yeah, I, I learned that. And I thank all of y'all for that, because that was that was kind of mind blowing for me. I, I think it's the realization that everybody's not going to do everything, right? Like, you know, going back to our previous episode, the standard for ally, if you ask me, is John Brown, right? Like, you know, who led a who led a, re a revolt of, you know, to free enslaved Africans and was killed by white people, right? Like, that's 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 the model for, for a white ally, right? Like, you put your life on the line, right? I understand everybody's not going to do that. You know, I, you know, some people got kids, some people, I, I don't want to die myself, right? You know, we're, you we're all different. I was like, I don't know if that's what people going to subscribe. No, I know, I know, I know, but that, that is, that is, uh, that is an ally, right? But there are other ones, ones who are speak up for you, right? That's an ally, right? That's a good one versus ones who will do different things, you know, like, and may, maybe lesser, right? It's, it's a spectrum. It's a spectrum. One of our guests says they don't believe in allies anymore. Struggling why? Misused. Say more. What, what's the struggle? Because it, it sounds like something similar what's happening in the content. Some yeah, I'm content. just, either you is or you ain't. It, it's no level to it. And I I, I, I think, I, I know we were like, you know, was like, I don't want to die myself. I don't, I don't, that's, hey, you know. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of good years left in me. I don't know what might come in the next 50. At the same time, for me, I really think about for Black folks in the workplace, oftentimes speaking up for yourself, oftentimes being the one to lead that charge for inclusivity is a very real threat to your viability because it could get you fired. And if you don't have access to work, 
you don't have access to money. You don't have access to food. Like to me, it's a very fine line. And so when white folks who are allies really do the work of being an ally, then that means you're willing to make yourself as vulnerable to outcome as I am. And for me, that's sort of my litmus test. I don't want the people coming to me after the meeting anymore saying, oh my God, that was so awesome what you said. I'm so, I like, I wish I could speak like you. You can, I don't, I, that that doesn't mean anything to me. Um, unless you are coming to me to get my agenda and then taking it to the meeting and ensuring that that agenda is met, then I don't count you as an ally. You could be sympathetic to my experience, but I don't think that that means you're an ally. For me, the allyship means ship. It's a relationship and that means effort. That means energy. That means behavior. Um, so I don't really know about a spectrum. See, I think about, and I would say when I think about the levels to it, to me, that sound, that, that first level of like, the. I, I see the comments, allies are never as vulnerable as we are. Mm-hmm. This is the way I think about it. And I think it's good to have divergent opinions. I think there's allies who trying to help, who at the beginning phases of the work, and I think there's accomplices. And what you just described, Dr. Nikki, to me, people who are willing to be as vulnerable as like accomplices. Allies is like moved. They're, you know, they're moved by your pain. They're into it. They're trying. They don't got the tools. They don't got the tips. They're trying to figure it out. And accomplices is that strategicness to me. We strategizing. What are we going to do in the meeting? How are you going to move forth the agenda? How are you going to blow some stuff up? And then I'm going to blow some stuff up and then we're going to get what we need to get. And so I've noticed that along, I guess, I guess I think about identity development. I think about all the racial identity development, white identity development, black identity development. I feel like people are at different levels of that. And I think once you come to a certain level of consciousness about the systems of oppression that we've talked about, about what it truly means to be committed to that, then you're willing to be to risk some stuff because you got enough awareness. I consider allies a little different from people who are just nonchalant and they don't care. They just going about their life and they live in and they don't get it. And they're the ones who are like, oh my God, I'm so excited that you spoke up in the meeting. That's not an ally to me, but a person who's trying to learn. So I think that the takeaway is that there, there for some people, it looks like it's different levels to it. You are not a self-defined ally. Right. You have we can to agree on that. We can all agree on that. We can 100 percent agree on that. Through behavior, through some level of behavior. And that behavior most often re- involves some type of risk, can we say? Right. Some type of risk 100%. to be considered an ally or an accomplice. I also think, though, you got to have some credentials. Like if I say this person is an ally, but they don't stand up for Dr. Bryan or G Day, but they cut for me. Maybe it's just because they like me. Mm. Maybe because I remind mm-hmm. them of somebody. You you gotta mm-hmm. have street cred. I gotta. I, yeah. The, yeah. the talk behind your back need to be the same as what I see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's real. While you were talking, Doctor Luanda, it hit me. I think I put things kind of on a spectrum because that's how I see that trans theoretical model of change, which is this fancy theory that says that there's I think five different parts of a behavior change. There's like. Contem- uh, pre-contemplation where you're not even thinking about it contemplation where you're like mm, maybe i should do something action where you actually do it maintenance where you continue that you action one. did i skip one yeah i think it's ready i thought is it readiness okay i, think it's I don't remember contemplation, contemplation readiness readiness is the shortest one then okay then action, action and then maintenance 
Okay, and the maintenance. Yeah. And so, uh, and this, see, this is why I love being around psychologists. This is great. And so to me, that's kind of how I see. And, uh, Dr. Luanda, to your point, it could be that they're not allies. It could be that they're accomplices or just not assholes. Like the, the pre-contemplative phase is the, you know, assholes. And then the contemplative phase is the not so much of an asshole. And then the, Readiness phase is the accomplice, and then the the action phase is the the true ally. I don't know, but that yeah. And to that point, uh, yeah, I, I yeah. So that's kind of how I chop it all up. But don't don't pay me no attention. But Can I, I ask y'all a question? Would. Yeah. Can you think of an example of an ally, like a contemporary example of an ally, of an accomplice? Sorry. <laughs> yeah, like a popular one, like that everyone would know. Maybe one that everybody would know, but maybe somebody who's at your work. You know what I'm saying? Somebody at your job who you say, ah, oh, nah, they're really an accomplice. You know, mm-hmm. I'm just trying to think. I can think of several. I have, a, I have a, I have a, a white friend, and I call, mm-hmm. and I'm very specific in that she is a friend. She's one of my dearest friends, and mm-hmm. the way that everybody talks about her is the same. The way she shows up is the same. That she's Good. been intentional about hiring black faculty in her department because she knows that she ser- the, the the folks that come to her department and the work that those folks want to do requires there be black scholars and academics in the space. Ben and Jerry, I would agree. That's yeah. true. That's true. I agree. True. And then I, I think it. about um, that other, that white dude from um, How to Get Away with Murder, Matt McGrory. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Yeah, he, he, he tweets some stuff sometimes. Yeah, because um, I have a white friend who is a therapist. He's a psychophysiologist, so he does um, uh, hypnosis and the whole nine yards. Uh, and he's actually from Africa, but he's a white dude. Uh, and, uh, yeah, he marches, he donates, he, uh, he checks in on me, like, like all the time, like, Hey, how are you doing? Um, he speaks up, he confronted a police officer not too long ago. And I was like, only a white dude can do that and live. So peace and blessings that to part. you, sir. Uh, and so, yeah, so he's kind of my local standard. Um, uh, and, um, yeah, but it, they're so rare. You know, I think part of being an ally or an accomplice Maybe is that there isn't quite as much risk. That's part of it. I don't know if risk Ooh. is necessary, right? Because part of it is that like they're not going to get fired for proposing DEI work at at work. They're just the boss is just going to say no, get out of my office, Jake, right? But if you're black and you're proposing Chad, the DEI work, Chad, Chad, <laughs> right? Or Chad Wellington, sorry, right? Um, but if you're black and you're proposing that DEI work, your job is really at at risk. You know what I'm saying? So I don't know if the risk is nece- the risk necessary. Is because, it's because different, but it, it could be different. It's there. This is a good discourse. It's the risk. Because I'm thinking about some stuff recently. And I think mm-hmm, that there's mm-hmm. been risks. Mm-hmm. I just think that the risk impacts us differently. So whether it, I don't know, maybe there's a different level of risk. Well, so I think uh, uh, to Dr. Nikki's point, yes, uh, you have to inconvenience yourself. Like uh, uh, you have to risk your money. You have to risk your job. You have to risk something. And to me, a true ally is like when my friend walked up to the cop and knocked on the door and was like, how dare y'all support Trump and blah, 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 blah. And I was like, holy shit. You could have been hurt, like. But he wasn't, though. But that's the thing. He, he, <laughs> that, 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 <laughs> the there was no risk. There the was question no risk. is a setup. I want you to know, G. They already has his answer. Exactly. To... Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm saying, they're, they're, like, 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 I'm really thinking about it. Like, I'm, and, I, and this it's is like a question of power, me. right? There, there was like, no risk to him. Like, yeah. you were going to get shot if you knocked on that cop's door, mm-hmm. but he was never going to get shot if you knocked on the cop's door. Ooh, never. So we define the risk then. Yeah. What would be risky for us is not risky for non-black folks. It's not risky. Oh, I see what you mean. Okay, I, I you're, can, not, you're not going to lose your job. You know, they're just going to say, okay, whatever, move you on, right? 
I don't know. I think so. So if I can be gracious, I, I mm-hmm. think that with that, and so I, I think about it in terms of my experience as being an ally to LGBTQ plus community, mm-hmm. and the risk that comes along with that is more of a social risk, right? Like yeah, being in spaces where I tried to um, like actually check homophobia, check heterosexism then I'm the one that sort of ostracized or put aside or or made fun of for that, right? So I think there can be a social risk, right? Yeah. And I know that mm-hmm. some um, white folks actually lose connection with their family um, as a result of their political beliefs and their ways of trying to be corrective in the world. But I do think the level of tangible risk is always different for folks of color because that is the system. The system is designed to always lean into power and we are the group with less power. So the, we're closer to losing more. Mm-hmm. I like it. This conversation really speaks to what the season has been, right? Mm-hmm. Like it, it is a very nuanced, complex, you know, conversation about these different things that happen in the workplace. Here's why it feels like sometimes isolating and that people don't get it because it is such a very rich, you have to take a deep dive in what we call do the work to really understand what we're talking about in the workplace. And that's why I think it's very important for us to be able to recap these things and show that it's not just like a shoot it off your your tongue and it's like you've internalized it. You really have to really think about these things in a complex way and it costs some level of emotional energy. So, so far we've talked about a few tips. We got kind of caught up and not all allies are created <laughs> the same and we have different <laughs> opinions about what that means. But the next one that I want to say is that I want us to all get in the habit of affirming our vulnerabilities, right? And that we all are impacted differently about uh, by environments that we're in. And I use the metaphor as a person who has sinus disease and has allergies. I can go sit outside for 30 minutes and I can automatically feel aches in my body. I can feel fatigued. I can feel tired. And I'm not going to be able to enjoy being outside because I have a different level of vulnerability to that environment. Likewise, as it relates to mental health, we're more readily um, willing to admit that when it comes to our physical ailments than we are to our mental and emotional health. So when we go in these different environments and we think about the systems of oppression, we think about the toxicity, we think about how there's different levels of oppression, we're going to have different reactions to that. It's going to impact us in different ways. Some of it, some of it can feel like things that we can withstand and some of it is things that we absolutely cannot withstand. And so I kind of want to break, we want to break that mental health stigma that we all have vulnerabilities to these stressors and it may cause depression, it can cause anxiety, it can cause a breakdown. It could cause all these different things. And it's important for us to recognize that doesn't make us weak or less than, but it just really speaks to the vulnerabilities that we have as humans, as black humans. Amen. Um, and black folks, uh, there's a, there's a theory called weathering, which is this idea that when you're constantly bathing your biological machine in stress, uh, you tend to wear your body out faster, right? And so your cortisol is pumping, which is a good thing in the short term, but in the long term, cortisol around all the time is a bad thing. And so, um, yeah, and depending on what your genetic makeup is, some folks are uh, really, you know, kind of um, genetically resilient. Other folks are not. And so, and it's not anything that you did. Um, it could be, um, you know, truly in your genes. And so, 
uh, I, I always remind folks, just do the best you can. And then if for some reason you are seeing a doctor or you're seeing a psychiatrist or your own medicines for diabetes or depression or whatever, take your medicine the way you're supposed to, because it will actually be helpful to you. Mm-hmm. Which speaks to point six tip under your humanity. Y'all, humanity is not about how strong you were. You, were, I see this and I hear this all the time in private practice with clients. It's like, well, I didn't want them to think I was weak, that I couldn't push through, that I couldn't handle it, that I wasn't resilient, that I wasn't strong. And hum, the human experience is about strengths as well as challenges and vulnerabilities. And so it's okay mm-hmm. to be impacted by a toxic ass environment that's mm-hmm. pumping toxicity yep. into your body. So mm-hmm. honor your humanity, take breaks, you know, understand that it's an impact. No, you know, know the role of work in your life, right? Like, know exactly what it's the the purpose of your job, right? Like, your job is meant to provide you with money so you can eat (laughs) and have housing and have clothing and have your needs met, right? Like that. that, for, For me personally, it's been very helpful to view my job that way. I don't get wrapped up in all the stuff that happens at work, you know. 5 p.m. I, I walk. I walk out the door. It's it's over. None of that matters anymore, <laughs> you know, uh, because I know where it is. I have my kids first. I have my wife. I have my family. I have my the my hobbies. You know, all this other stuff, right? I'm not about to sacrifice all that for this job. So don't do that. You know, don't don't. It's not worth it. Anything else on the humanity piece? Pursue community, y'all. I think that we are collectivist people as a whole in the diversity across the diaspora. I think that we are collectivists. We are communal. We are tribal. Be in community with people. And that could be inside the workplace or outside the workplace. Um, there are some points, as to Dr. Jade's point, I am a person who finds some level of fulfillment in my work. But when I'm done, I'm done. So there is a level of fulfillment, but there is a level of fulfillment that I don't think that work can provide because I think it's rooted in capitalism and and overproductivity. So finding community and being in community outside of that is very, very helpful. Some of us are fortunate enough to be able to have that community within the workplace. Some of them, some of us are not. And so I think it's important to kind of be able to pause and scan the environment to determine is this a space where I can have this community or do I need to pursue it outside of the community? Yeah. And feel free to make your community, right? If there's somebody at work that you like, if there's somebody in your neighborhood you like, approach them. Uh, we, we, I love that. We are collectivist communal people. Yeah. Approach them. Um, even if you're not an extrovert, like people say I am, which I'm not y'all. Just for the record, I'm not an extrovert. Just saying. <laughs> somebody, uh, did somebody been in the mix? They said no more John Hearingism. Okay. I see you mm-hmm. with what episode four or five, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We done with the John Hearingism. I love it. So find you a community who gets that John Hearingism and pursue it. Eight, number eight, the eighth tip is rest and recover. Y'all, like I am very adamant about this. I have a series coming up on redefining resilience. Resilience is not about how much you can push through, but it is a, a about rest and recovery as well. And we don't give ourselves permission to do that, even if that can't look like an elaborate vacation and you know, and all these kinds of things that kind of come with means, I do think that there is space for us to rest and recover. And I find often that we need permission to do that. So many people feel like they have to earn rest. Like we need to earn a sense of rest and we need to be able to earn a state of recovery. And that's just your birthright, much like pleasure. So take your time away, eat, rest, be well, attend to your mental and physical health, even if it's a five minute walk. Or five-minute engagement in between. I'll mm-hmm. rely on the MD to tell me what to do in this. But I think the rest of recovery is helpful. 
Yeah, and keep in mind, your businesses, the companies that you work for, they provide PTO, so y'all take it. Don't leave that shit on the table. I don't know why people do that. Like, we we literally, when I have my employees, I have already basically written, uh, paid for you to take time off. So take your damn time off. Whew, Lord. And if you haven't, make sure to do yourself a favor and go to social media and listen to the new Black Rest Anthem, Go Lay Down. Get that in your life. Oh, okay. And you need the motivation. Ministry. And the nap ministry. The nap mm-hmm. ministry will get you together and let you know that you need to nap and rest and recover. Um, and I think the last two are very, very important. And I, I want to kind of pause. I know we kind of rushed through the, the last two or three. And if y'all missed it, you can find a recap on the season. But pursuing joy and pursuing pleasure, I think, is very, very critical and very, very important. And so I think we should all prioritize in terms of mental health, pursuing what makes us joyful. Even if that joy, joyness is watching your favorite trash TV, your favorite meal, your favorite cocktail, your favorite person, being in community. Some people don't have the means to be able to take off and take vacations or they're toxic is too toxic. So how can you prioritize pursuing joy and pursuing pleasure? I think that that is radical resistance to everything that we are experiencing. So I hope and that joy and that pleasure could be anything from physical pleasure, sex to emotional pleasure, uh, you know, just engaging the things that you enjoy. I hope people will give themselves permission to pursue that. That's very, very important. Yeah, especially uh, given the pandemic and all the stress. So stress kills libido, y'all. And the the birth rates for everybody are going down, especially for black folks. And so, yes, go have lots of uh, good, safe, uh, wonderful sex because we, <laughs> we need more black folks. Exactly. You can't have safe sex and make babies. You can't have them together. Get tested, have safer sex and make the baby. There you go. All right. Yeah. Okay. Let's get clear. Uh, okay. Let's get clear. Know your status. No. Yes. Um, yes. We have some questions. Let me see. I, I want to point out. Thank you to all who've made great comments today. You've really provoked like a really live discussion in the chat. Um, Jabril made a comment that you know Dr. Nikki said she really wants to sit with. I think we're all allies in context of ourselves. To be an ally to someone, a person needs to be able to envision themselves in relation to what they are fighting for. That's a word right there. Thank you, Jabril. Mm. Breach. That's a word. That's a word. Um, we got a question that said, is it worth navigating all the levels of stress in the long run? Uh, no, no. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I would say do what you're good at. Don't do what you're not good at. You've heard me say that a billion <laughs> times in this podcast. And so, yeah, there's certain shit where I'm like, I will not stand for that. And I will speak up and it's in my wheelhouse and I'll go for it. And then, yeah, there's other nonsense where I'm like, I don't have time for this. So I don't, mm-hmm. I don't deal with it. So I say, pick mm-hmm. your, pick your, pick your battle. So yeah. let me add to that. I think that, um, I think it takes intention to live a life of reflection and, and that means that, hmm, let me say it this way. We, we've talked about systems earlier. I think one of the important functions of systems of oppression are to disconnect you from your body. This is why we talk about rest being so important. This is why we mm-hmm. talk about pursuing radical joy as being important. Uh, um, joy is resistance and recognizing and remember pleasure is your birthright. Because the system is designed to make you disconnect. And in that disconnection, you don't take the time out to reassess, why am I working this hard for this thing? 
Is this still in alignment with my values or not? Have my values shifted over time? How can I find ways to then engage my energy and time that makes me feel enlivened as opposed to this place where I'm consistently feeling drained? So when I did like peace, I think um, one, I always encourage folks to go back and listen to when it's toxic to toxic, because I think that is um, a challenge that we as black folks continue to struggle with this feeling the need to just stay someplace because it's mm -hmm. a good job. And then I really, really will echo what Jude said. It's like, know the place of work. Work can't be everything. They will make you try to believe that it has to be everything for you to be sex successful. But that's just not the case. But I think you have to have mm -hmm. some real intentionality and in being self-reflective about who you are, what is working for you, um, what is changing for your life over time, and where you need to sort of readjust. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Nikki. So, y'all, I hope that it's my, it's our intention that you, as a Black person, feel seen, feel validated, feel heard, feel understood, and feel like you have some tools to help you navigate the, the workplace, whatever that workplace looks like as a Black person. I hope that you will listen and re-listen, wake up to the to this crowdcast, to other seasons, to help you navigate the stressful work environment that you may be in because there's levels to this of being Black in the workplace and that we offer you at least some tips that you may not be able to all take in right now, but you will be able to take in at some point. And so it has been a pleasure to be able to gather with y'all, share our tips, share our tools, share our expertise, and hope that it empowers you, equips you, um, help you feel seen and heard uh, for the season one of The Break Room. We wrap up every episode with our last nerve, right? We usually give ourselves 60 seconds to talk about what is our absolute last nerve because there's tons of things to get on our last nerves as Black people in the workplace. And I'm going to take it away tonight. I think I'm going to take it away. I'm going to give it 60 seconds because I'm all about reclaiming my joy. I'm not giving it more than 60 seconds. So I'm going to give my last nerve of what I what is on my last nerve for 60 seconds tonight. And then we'll close out. So Brian, give me a timer. All right. I want more for us. So recently, Dr. Bill Cosby was released from prison. Okay. And he was released not because he was found innocent or that the jury was like, oh, damn, he's innocent of his self-proclaimed or he self-admitted crimes of serially raping people. Okay. He was not found innocent of that. There was procedural technicalities that led to his the Supreme Court overturning his case. And so he's out. And he's not innocent. And what I want for Black folks is that there's a lot of Black people, many of which I saw, send me memes. And like Carton memes, y'all, like exact, you know, excited and rejoicing that he was out. And I want y'all to know, and I want better for you, that there is a difference between a character in which you have idealized, i.e., Cliff Huxtable mm -hmm. and the real person who is a rapist, Dr. Bill Cosby. And when we are unable to separate those people and we, we latch ourselves onto this character and we just dismiss all the evidence, much of the evidence he admitted to, we continue to idealize these people that are unhealthy to the community. And it creates division. So it's not a last nerve because I'm trying to be a better human these days. It is, I want better for us. And I want us to be able to understand that consent is consent and the man is guilty. I don't care if he's out. I don't care if it was technicality. I don't care how much you loved him. I don't care how much he was your father figure because J. Cole said he was a father figure to him. 
but he's it still was a character and who he is as a person is a rapist and that's that on that and so dr lawanda thank you for uh sharing your perspective and yeah i just oh yes i we uh, we at the break room we all want better for all black people all people but especially for our, for black folks so we are super stoked that y'all joined us this season uh next season we have a whole different story arc and it's gonna be fun we're gonna have some <laughs> some new faces some old faces y'all it's gonna be lit because uh, we have a whole uh, retreat this summer to plan all this stuff out so thank y'all so much for being here this evening be safe this summer guys bye, bye. bye.